the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Hey, greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and with me, as always, are my good friends Mike and Brian. Mike, how are you today? Good, sir. I am really glad to be on the mics with good friends. We'll I'm, leave it at that. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you are with us, my friend. Uh, Brian, how are you? Ordinary. Wow, that actually sounds really good. <laughs> I'd take that. Man, there are people well, out sometimes there Sometimes you have are, to scrape for it. Yeah, there are people out there who are like, I wish things were ordinary with me. Right? Mm-hmm. Gosh, ordinary sounds so good right now. <laughs> so... Well, we're happy to be here. Things are ordinary. So let's move on to the extraordinary things, and let's get the geek out. Uh, Who wants to go first? I'll go ahead and go. Um, Yeah, ever since uh, my friend moved in, he's he's doing some travel nursing in the area, and so he's uh, decided to take up residence at our place, which means that my quality of life has increased considerably. And he has been saying, oh, you need to check out this really good anime. You need to check out this really good anime. So we don't need to go out and find good anime because he just kind of filters out all of the crud for us. A living curator? Exactly. Everyone (laughs) needs an anime curator. Yeah, because like you said, there's a lot of really quality stuff. There's a lot of really horrible crud. And there's a lot of just mediocre see i get none of those other categories and he's just saying hey check this out check this out right now he's got my wife and kids hooked on full metal alchemist and full metal alchemist brotherhood we're watching them both side by side ah so good (laughs) that's probably confusing yeah well there every once in a while my wife was like well, wait a minute. Did this happen in this one? Like, no, no, that happened in the other one. <laughs> no, because the curator is there to guide them through the the separate plot lines of the similarities and the differences. So, yeah, I could go on and on about a lot of those. Uh, I do want to make a quick mention of uh, Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba. And this is a bit more of a heavier anime than I usually get into. Uh, heavier in terms of it's it's dark and it's bloody but it's also beautiful and it has some really amazing human emotional touch points. And the demons in this are more, more like vampires than anything else that I can compare to in any other mythology that I have reference to. And also the fact that the hunter also has compassion for the humans that these people used to be is really an amazing touch. But Beautiful artistically, wonderful emotional threads, and just a lot of of gorgeous, deep fun. Uh, if you don't mind the bloodiness, because as I said, the demons are kind of like vampires, so there's blood. So, you know, get used to that. He also has turned me on to one that we just finished watching recently called Your Lie in April. And... This one is available on Netflix. So have, have either of you heard of this? I have. I've heard a lot of glowing reviews for it. I put it on my uh, queue, but I haven't watched it yet. It's really amazing because, again, the emotional threads seem very real that they're tying together. It's an emotionally complex story of a boy who is a child prodigy of the piano. 
And he suffered under a terminally ill and very abusive mother who wanted him to succeed. And once she died, just all of this crushing emotional pressure and all this anxiety formed a mental block. And he just fell apart on the stage. And he was not even able to hear any of the notes that he was playing. Like, he could hear the keys just thunking against the piano, but he couldn't hear any of the notes that he was generating. And so he just disappeared off of the performance circuit altogether. And then years later, he meets this wonderful, bright, free spirit of a girl who compels him to join her on the stage. And it's his journey of being brought into, brought back into the performance sphere once again. And what is just so amazing is that the piano and violin performers that they have for the show is, is its own sort of voice acting because it's not just somebody playing the piano for this character. I'm pretty sure they have to have multiple performers come in to give character to each of these different performance styles. And so really the, the piano performance is its own voice acting mm -hmm. and you can tell as, as he's playing and then he hits his emotional block and his mental block and he stops hearing what he's saying, the piano player changes the way that they play. Like they're still playing the score that's written, but they're also just hitting the keys. There's no finesse. There's no, there's no soul to it. And it's just kind of pounding away at the, at the notes. And so the, the performance changes dramatically, not only from one scene to the next, but over the course of the show. And so if you have any, any ear for music or really want to see a real human drama, I mean, it's set with junior high kids, but it's still a very rich show, and I would definitely recommend it. I think it's definitely going to be bumped up on my list then. And sort of the last thing that I've been geeking out to has been, has been my reading. And I was really looking forward to getting a hold of this book and it, I've had kind of a complex relationship with it since I've started reading. It's called <laughs> African Samurai, The True Story of Yasuke, a legendary black warrior in feudal Japan. And it is, in some part, a true story. There, there was this man, Yasuke, who came over to Japan in the 1550s. He arrived with a Jesuit priest and... In some sort of exchange, he came under the employ of the Japanese Lord Nobunaga. Uh, Yasuke, uh, though he was born in Africa, became landed and became a samurai and fought as the arms bearer for Lord Nobunaga. So this is a huge deal that we have an African-born individual coming in and rising to the ranks in feudal Japan. Now, the historical record is pretty scant on him. I mean, there are theories. People say he was he came to Japan as a slave. Some people think that he came as an employee of the Jesuit. We really don't know where he was from. We don't really know how he got there. He was probably a slave at one point, but we really don't know his history prior to these things that wind up in a few journals here and there. And so this book presents a narrative style in describing his journey from from Europe to Japan and how he came into Nobunaga's employ. And the problem is, is that all of these things that are just scraps of diary and historical record and pieces here and there 
are woven into a narrative format. So it reads like a novel. I mean, it adds dialogue. It adds comments about the weather and what people are thinking on this stage of a journey. And the problem is the book makes absolutely no internal distinction between historical record, conclusions drawn from documentable events, theories based on historical research, pure conjecture, and not implausible ideas that the author made up, that there's no footnotes to distinguish between any of these things, and it's all thrown together in one cover. Hmm. So it's not a history book. The book, I don't even think, knows what kind of book it is. (laughs) Does it at least have a a bibliography of some kind so that if you wanted to go to the primary sources, you could? It does have a bibliography. It is extremely scant on primary sources. There are a Mm. lot of secondary sources that it refers to. I mean, and that's because a lot of the things that the book is talking about is trying to give you some sense of the context. And I haven't quite gotten there yet, but I've skimmed ahead, and we're going to read about Yasuke's training as a samurai. Well, nothing ever documented how he was trained as a samurai, but there's documentation as to how samurai trained. So it sounds like they're just piecing mishes and mashes of stuff together and putting it into his life. And a lot of those things are are secondary sources. So, yeah, you can do your own research. I've done some of my own reading independent of this book, which is what's allowed me to come to this skeptically and allowed me to say, okay, I know that's got to be made up, but I don't know that at any given stage in the book. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know which is which because I'm not that detailed in my research at this point. So With the, the good and the bad, the positives and the negatives about the book, is it one that you would recommend to other people who were even slightly curious about the subject? I think that this this is a subject that definitely deserves our interest. I mean, this is this is a remarkable journey. How often do we hear of a foreign-born samurai? I mean, that's, yeah. that that's not common. And was, it is was uh, this during the time when uh, Japan's borders were closed? Oh, this is one of the few times that Japan's borders were open. Now I know a bit okay. about the 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 Portuguese interaction uh, with Japan. And right now, the, the emperor is just way too weak and so ceremonial that he does not have a hard control over what's going on in the lands. So the borders are open because nobody is there to enforce it. China is fed up and not officially trading with Japan. And so Japan is kind of trading with anybody who will. And I've actually seen some artwork in the way of those foldable panels that were made during this time. And so you actually get to see these landscapes of uh, a Portuguese merchant with a side sword on his hip passing by a samurai with the sword and dagger, the two two swords tucked into the sash. And that's drawn, like those were made from exactly this time period. So that's really cool. Uh, I remember the name uh, Nobunaga, from elsewhere, I can't remember what I have associated that with, but he must have been yeah. fairly famous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was one of the quote unquote unifiers of Japan at this time, um, and some of that unification was political, and some of that was really, really bloody. 
Um, and yeah, uh, really heavy handed. So the question would I recommend it? I think it's a story worth reading, especially if you're willing to dig into the background and to read this particular text skeptically. And to say, I've read a book that has some historical grounding and not leave the book saying, I know history. Mm -hmm. So yeah, read it humbly. I, I would say that. Read it humbly and skeptically. Good advice for just about any historical text. Yeah, really? And that would wrap up my geek out, I think. All right. I'll go next, because I've only got one thing to talk about, and that's The Outer Worlds. Oh, dude. For anybody who's not aware that this this is uh, Obsidian's new uh, action RPG, uh, kind of in the vein of... Uh, it's kind of like a blend between the Elder Scrolls or Fallout and uh, Bioware RPGs. It's a little bit more linear than a, a Bethesda game um, or the previous obsidian uh, fallout titles i was going to say i'm coming directly from playing skyrim and having that entire open world to much smaller map it was a bit of a shock but i also found it very useful because now i'm not traipsing over hill and dale and i'm actually <laughs> doing the jobs i'm supposed to be getting done i'm actually yeah, staying on story <laughs> you don't forget what you were doing in the midst of a thousand little tiny side quests yeah I don't come back to a save in the middle of a dungeon and be like, where am I? What was I, I have doing? no memory of I this place. Know. I have no memory right. of this place. Yeah. <laughs> but it does have a, a kind of a fallout vibe to it in places where you've got a lot of uh, areas that were recently inhabited but are now abandoned. And so you've got the, the decay that you're used to seeing in a fallout game. Visually and, and thematically, it also evokes a little bit of Bioshock and Firefly. So much Firefly. It's it looks this... beautiful. I'm looking at the oh, screenshot now. Gorgeous. Speaking of Firefly, when you first start playing, there's a pair of characters that you meet. One of them is the boss of this town uh, named Reed Thompson. And if you're familiar with Firefly at all, you talk to this guy, Reed, for more than two <laughs> seconds, and you realize this is Badger. Badger, oh absolutely. My it is well, He's even got the hat. <laughs> he's even got the hat. And some of the phrases that he uses are straight Firefly. And it's, is Jane Espenson one of the writers for this game and no one knew it? <laughs> you know, they didn't credit writers in the credits that I saw, which there was a lot of oh. like gameplay artists and that kind of thing. So I think that they had uh, like producers writing the script. I don't didn't know. Maybe I just missed a paragraph mm. while I was watching the credits. But one of the second people that you meet who you spend a lot of time doing dialogue with is the first companion you can pick up, a incredibly charming woman named Parvati. She's straight up Kaylee. Oh, and she gets more Kaylee by the end. Yeah. <laughs> How far into it are you, James? I just left the space station Groundbreaker and landed on the second colony on Terra 2. Um that I can't remember. It's the colony uh, where the... the Rose something? Yes. It, it was the mission where there was a distress signal coming from there. Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of that. That's about as far as I've gotten. Yeah, so, yeah, so she gets the, even more Kaylee later on. <laughs> yeah. She and another uh, person named Felix are my only two companions right now. Oh, you didn't pick up the uh, the vicar? No, because he's a slimy jerkball. 
Uh, he is a slimy jerkball, yes. <laughs> and honestly, so did you bicker okay, with the vicar? His, his, I did not bicker with the vicar. I, the vibe I got off him was that he was wanting me to search for this holy text, and I'm like, he's going to burn this book. He's going to burn this book, and I'm like, nope, uh-uh, I'm not doing the mission. This is the last we'll be talking, good sir. If at some point you play it again, I encourage you to pick him up, because you might be surprised at where that character goes. Oh, sounds well, like you're a vicar picker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know what? If I couldn't pick him up then, maybe I'll go back and I'll, I'll try it again. I didn't pick up the mission, so it's still probably sitting mm-hmm. there in limbo. So It may or may not. Sometimes they do close off. Oh, um, we'll see. Yeah, the NPCs are very a lot more nuanced in this game than they are in most RPGs. Like, you think you know what somebody's about. They look like a caricature at first, but as you start to explore them, you start to, to pick up information about them, you start to realize, oh, wow, this is actually a lot more complex a situation than I thought that it was to start with. Like in that first uh, scenario with Edgewater, I kept getting pushed back and forth on, okay, which side am I going to side with? What am I going to do? And it's like all the way up to the very moment when I'm reaching for the switch and then Parvati says something I'm like, dang it, you just changed my mind again. <laughs> Oh, wow. Just out of what he's talking about, there is this company town on this planet. Everyone who lives there works for the company, and you live and die by the job. Now, some people hate it. Some people are like, hey, this is who we work for. This is honest work. It's okay. But some people didn't like it, decided to leave and start their own fringe group. And they're not evil people. They're just making their own way of life. And you're given a choice. You get to this power station. Who do you route power to? Do you route it to the town? and kill off these people who want to live free and alone, or do you route power to them, thus killing off the plant and the town? And it's important to know that the dissidents aren't like virtuous hippies. They've got their own problems, their own bad personality traits, their own uh, level of uh, vengefulness. and There is no true good guy, bad guy in this scenario. So, Brian, just out of curiosity, which way did you slide? I turned off the power for the, the garden, but I managed to get the people to come back and read to leave. So Adelaide took over the town. Gotcha. And it surprised me that that was an option because I thought it was going to be, okay, you got to choose one side or the other and, and people are going to suffer no matter what you do. But it turned out there actually was a way to, to make a compromise. Um, and the only person who really suffered was Reed. And he didn't have to. I mean, he had other options. He made a bad decision. Uh, that's kind of spoilery there. Sorry, <laughs> but I'm I was been very impressed by the decisions that can be that are to be made are complex and they're meaningful. I do wish that you had to live in them a little bit more. Like once you make the decision about Edgewater, that's done, and then you leave the planet and you go somewhere else. Um, I think it would have been a little bit more impactful if you make that decision and then you have to keep working there for a little while and really understand the the impact that the decision had. You don't really get that until the very end and you get your, your typical end credit scenes. Like, this is what happened in this place and that place. But in comparison to, say, Fallout 4, where the only real decision that you make is which gun you're going to use to execute somebody, um, <laughs> it's a much, much better role-playing experience. I also want to give tribute to the voice acting mm-hmm. and the, I won't say scripts, but the, the interaction with the different characters, especially people like Parvati. You know, it's hard to get to see facial expression on a video game mm-hmm. uh, that does come through in a couple especially of places. Especially when they're wearing helmets. Yeah. <laughs> but the amount of emotion that a lot of the characters in this game convey through their voice, 
is really well done. Uh, you also missed uh, Ellie as a companion if you're already through the Groundbreaker. Uh, next time you go by there, you're in the, the medical bay. Uh, see, I, I, someone... didn't, I didn't go in the medical bay. I missed that one. Uh, there's a woman in the medical bay that you can pick up as a companion. And when you have her and Parvati in your group at the same time, they've got some really interesting dialogue between the two of them. And it just goes on and on. I think they've got probably a good 10 minutes of conversation that'll it'll just pick up occasionally mm-hmm. um, and their as their relationship develops with one another and it's not anything that you uh, interfere with or or have to do anything about it's okay these these two people are learning how to to deal with one another it's really interesting Mike mentioned uh, how beautiful it looked earlier if you're tired of the the bleakness of Skyrim, how everything tends to just be white and gray and occasionally green, the Outer Worlds is what you're looking for because it is so saturated. It's got colors everywhere. You've got holographic advertisements being thrown in your face all the time. The environment on Monarch is like psychedelic colors. I mean, pinks and blues and greens just everywhere. And the monsters are camouflaged in that. So the monsters are all pink and blue and green. Oh, wow. Uh, they do a lot of work with uh, lens modeling, so it's got a really shallow depth of field in cutscenes and in see. conversations. Uh, you can see the bokeh of the lights in the background, chromatic aberration, motion blur. It's just really gorgeous. Oh, what was that game that came out? Um... Well, you haven't said Mass Effect Andromeda in a few episodes, so maybe it was that one. No, yeah. absolutely not that. <laughs> Was it Pac-Man? That came out in May of 1980. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, the lens effects in Pac-Man are just top-notched. Oh, my gosh. And also the motion blur, also mm. just solid. And very psychedelic. <laughs> you eat one of those pills, what is it? And all of a sudden... <laughs> I see ghosts. And I eat this one, and the ghosts are scared of me. (laughs) Oh, look, there's fruit on the ground. I'll eat that, too. Oh, that does not sound safe, dude. That does not sound safe. (laughs) Particularly where I live. (laughs) Okay. Did either one of you guys ever play the Far Cry 3? It started out as a mod, but they turned it into a full game called uh, Blood Dragon. No. Okay. I do not know this thing. This was a game that is pure 1980s action sci-fi movie nostalgia. They took the <laughs> Far Cry 3 engine and basically slapped neon 1980s all over it. It's set in a retro future 80s VHS world. You are a, a cyborg special commando dropped onto an island. The main character is named Sergeant Rex Power Colt. <laughs> and, yeah, Series 4, Cybernetic Soldier. And one of the main villains that you fight are neon-outlined blood dragons. And they're giant dragons which don't breathe fire. They breathe lasers. <laughs> I must play this game. It's. I think it's more than Pac-Man that's been eating the strange pills on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely glorious. And it's one of the few games that is on my Xbox that I have a hundred percent completion. <laughs> uh, oh, I, have, nice. I have found every little thing, every little secret. I had to complete it all because it was so wonderful. No, I'm definitely looking for that one. 
And thankfully, since it, it originally came out on the 360, I think you can probably find it for super cheap. Your description of the planet Monarch made me think of that. I haven't gotten to Monarch yet, but now I am really looking forward to it. <laughs> it's got some some tough monsters in it, so be ready. Have a good gun. Okay. Oh, you, you haven't fought a blood dragon yet, so yeah. <laughs> I have enjoyed the various weapons they've got. I do like that right out of the box. If you find a weapon, because I mean, there's going to be bad guys that have weapons all over the place. You can find them. You can break them down. You can find various workstations throughout the planets and on your ship. And as you find mods or buy mods, you can just you don't have to gain the weapon mod or level up that uh, that skill. You can just start building up your weapons, making them better right from the get go. I think you do have to have a minimum level in engineering to be able to add a mod to a gun. Um, I built my character with high engineering stuff was, right from the beginning. so It was pretty yeah. low. Uh, and you have to have a minimum amount of science in order to be able to tinker. And tinkering is cool because if you've got a gun with all the mods that you like and you're, you're, you're used to it and you don't want to constantly having to be like, okay, I've got to buy another gun and then upgrade that gun, is you can actually increase the stats on an individual weapon. Uh, so, you know, your, your starting sidearm will kind of level up with you, not only your skills in using it, but you can tinker with it. You have to spend, spend money to do it, but you can make that gun itself better, yeah. which I thought was a pretty cool feature. The bit about the inventory that I don't like is that you'll come across a lot of uh, armor pieces with skill bonuses. And so I find myself constantly like, okay, well, I've got a jumpsuit that gives me a plus 10 to lockpick, so I've got to change my clothes in order to open this door and then change my clothes back into my main armor so that I don't get shot. Or it you just could seems eat, a little weird. Or you could eat one of the 500 different varieties of food that this game seems to have in it. <laughs> it's like the opposite of the game that just came out recently, Borderlands 3 has. Borderlands 3 was famous for supposedly they had a million different guns in the game. And this one, it's got like a million different food items, and each and every one right. of them does something different. And they all sound just disgusting. They sound horrible. <laughs> just the worst. Did you get to the point where Reed was telling you about what they actually put in the Saltuna? I th- oh, no. I th- yeah. The factory on this first planet you go to, the one that all the people are working at, it's a Saltuna factory. And by the way, this company is called Spacer's Choice. The logo is, it's not the best choice. It's Spacer's <laughs> Choice. <laughs> and that I'm sums up the whole by. thing. Yeah. Well, they're talking about, well, we were starting to run out of tuna, so we just started putting fillers in. And he's listing the fillers, and it's like dirt and extra bolts from the factory. It's like, uh, it's no wonder your people are getting sick. (laughs) That and a couple of other reasons is why when it came time to make a decision about who got the power, I went with the greenhouse. Mm -hmm. Gosh, it's like a recall notice got turned into an ingredient. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you got fired, you were required to turn your pink slip back in because it got put along in the process with everything else. <laughs> I, I was on the side of the people that were working there, you know, with their good stories and their bad, but I ultimately decided to go against the company because this mm-hmm. is a place that it doesn't care if it... Like, uh, Parvati was saying that her dad worked there. She never knew her mom because they were both company people, and when she was born, she became company personnel as well. And her dad died on the job, and the company didn't care. And I'm like, okay, nope. Uh, so he's nope. an ingredient, too. All right. Yeah, he's now an ingredient, yeah. too. 
it pushes the class warfare themes really hard. Um, I think mm-hmm. maybe too hard. It could be subtler. Yeah, there are times um, it's about as subtle as a brick through a window. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with their point, but I think that the point didn't need to be made with an impact hammer all the time. Yeah. What was that conversation we had in an earlier episode about don't make the subtext text? Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a it's a really solid, well-made game. It's actually pretty stable, even on the PC. It doesn't have that many bugs. I do have some advice if you play it on PC. Cap your uh, FPS at 60. It seems to get a lot crashier if you go higher than that. And it does get crashier near the end. I even had it crash, unfortunately, during the credits, which disappointed me. Oh, so you've already oh. done a complete playthrough then. Yeah, I'm on my second now. <laughs> <laughs> the credits, they actually, there are entries in the credits for two people's 5th uh, edition Dungeons & Dragons game characters. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's fantastic. apparently they had... They had a couple of uh, company D&D games going on, and so they, those also got the, credit. These are the people you want making your action RPG. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But no, but no writer credits? I mean, to be fair, since we're here, um, Boyarsky and Megan Starks are credited as writers according to Wikipedia. So, mm-hmm. you know. I'm, I must if, have, if, like, looked away, <laughs> or I was enjoying the music too much when they went by. Well, one way or the other, if their names didn't wind up on the screen, they wound up in this podcast. So everybody who played the game can just listen to the podcast, and now everything's good. And speak- That's right. Speaking of great music. Absolutely awesome. I was playing a little bit while my wife was sitting on the couch next to me, and at one point even she said, the music on this is really nice. It's got a kind of a, a Joel Goldsmith melodic lines held up by the string section. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of Western-style Firefly stuff. It's mm-hmm. really, really nice. I think I've said about all I have to say about The Outer World. Did you have anything more? The only thing I wanted to ask you is, because it is a Obsidian title, and these are the people who have done a two. Fallout game before, or two of them, on the PC, how many glitches did you encounter? So far, the only glitch I've seen is that sometimes when you're fighting bandits, if you kill one, he hits the ground, and his arms and legs will kind of go through the ground a little bit as he's <laughs> lying there dead. So you just see his torso. There was one time that I thought, I'm like, oh, his arms and legs are through the ground. I'm like, oh, no, I hit him with a grenade launcher. He has no arms and legs. They came <laughs> it's off. It's kind of weird. Uh, there have been occasions where I shot somebody in the head and his arms and legs flew off. That was weird. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a feature, um, not a bug. <laughs> yeah, it really. It, it kind of is. You were using those magnum laser rounds. <laughs> I did have a, a couple of major glitches that I encountered. One is is huge, actually, and I should mention it. There's a character that you are supposed to connect with on Monarch uh, that will help you advance the main quest, and she's actually supposed to be one of your companions. And sometimes her dialogue gets bugged so that you can't give her the item that she needs in order to join your party. And so you have to actually find the place that she was supposed to lead you to without a quest marker and by yourself. That was inconvenient and annoying, but it didn't break the game. Uh, the other one is that I was in the middle of the conversation with Felix, and then I got a notification that Parvati's uh, quest had failed. Well, it turned out that Parvati's quest had failed because she somehow managed to like leave the spaceship while it was in flight. <laughs> she was like nowhere, nowhere on the ship anymore. Uh, Wait a minute! How did she get here? We're in space. I don't remember <laughs> pulling over. <laughs> exactly. 
Yes. <laughs> well, and somebody else said that they had witnessed her actually leaving, and she she climbs a ladder, and when she gets to the top, she doesn't stop climbing, and she just climbs all the way out through the ceiling, <laughs> and then dies because space. But fortunately, there was an autosave like right before that conversation, so I was able to go back, and I just had to listen to the conversation again. But those are the only two actual, like, real glitches that I found. I really don't even recall having seen any graphical uh, glitches of, of any kind. I mean, yeah, there's there's clipping problems where there's a corpse that's, like, sunk into the ground or something. But those are relatively minor. Um, in, term, in, in comparison to other Obsidian titles, it's much, much better. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask your take on was what you would consider the individual style of the game to be like the fallout games you could kind of put them as like adam punk because a post-apocalyptic kind of a Mm -hmm. uh, adam age style of feel to them of the technology that's left over besides the post-apocalyptic feel this one i was trying to put my finger on the particular aesthetic that they're going for and i would call it industrial retro sci-fi yeah ray punk is like the closest i could think of um, right, but with less rays and more big machines. Yeah, and that's not important to enjoy it. It was just something I kept thinking on about, like, how would I classify this look? Yeah, it's a nice aesthetic. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of its own thing, really. Yeah, it really is. Well, if that was all that you had. It was. Uh, cool. I will go next, and I will try to keep mine short because it's been a busy month and had a lot of great things go on, but I'll just dive right in. Uh, first off, a few weeks ago... Uh, my wife and I finally got to sit down and play one of the many unplayed board games in our closet. And not just any board game, we got to play Trogdor, the board game. Oh my god. <laughs> of course, as I know you gentlemen are familiar with, but our listeners may not be, this was a game based on a video from the old, late 90s, Homestar Runner website. Uh, Trogdor was the brainchild of a character named Strongbad, who he created in response to an email asking if he could draw a dragon. Well, some consummate Vs and some burned thatch-roofed cottages later, the internet would never be the same. (laughs) Uh, Last year, the people of Homestar Runner held a Kickstarter for the Trogdor game. The moment I saw it, I backed it. I mean, immediately. I've never seen my hand move that fast. (laughs) I should mention, their goal for this game was $75,000. In a month... They got $1.4 million. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I decided to go for the deluxe version, which came with some additional action cards and some really cool upgraded 3D character meeples. And uh, when we post this podcast, I'll pull the meeples out and show them to you. They are so cool. It plays great. There are cards that you lay out of fields, thatched roof cottages, and woods. And the four players play collectively as Trogdor. And it is your goal to work together to burninate the countryside. (laughs) And every turn, there are several steps. You get an action card, or you play an action card that lets you know how many action points you have. You use action points to move, to burninate, to eat the peasants. And then after all of that is done, uh, you also move around the knights and the archers who fight Trogdor, and if anything's on fire, you move the fire out as well. And you all keep working together collectively until either Trogdor has been killed or all the peasants have been eaten 
and the countryside has been burninated. <laughs> and so how does it play? I mean, is it, a, is it a fun play? It is a very fun play. And a part of the fun is tied into the nostalgia of it. If, you've, if you're not old enough or you, you're not familiar with it, it only takes three minutes to go online and find the Trogdor video. And after watching it, you're doing the game in the voice. Trogdor. <laughs> Burnating the countryside. <laughs> Burnating the peasants. Yeah. It's a fun play. It's an easy play. I think even with playing first time, going through the rule book as we did to make sure we did the proper steps, it's like a 35, 40 minute gameplay. So, but yeah, it's, it's going to have a lot of replayability. At least I think so. In addition, earlier in October, uh, I took my family to, to go see the Fort Worth Alliance Air Show. And oh, I love air shows. It was a blast. This was our first time taking them to an air show. And we got parked. We're walking in. And that was right when the Blue Angels started their demo. Oh, jeez. You heard and saw this batch of blue F-18s come screaming over the horizon. And it was incredible. I mean, you see videos and pictures of the Blue Angels. They've been around for a while. But seeing high-speed precision flying in person, there's nothing like it. The boys loved it. I first, I was really worried that the noise, because, I mean, these things are just at times deafeningly loud, that they were not going to enjoy it at all. Their hands were going to be over their ears and be crying. When we saw those F-18s in the air, I wheeled the stroller around so they could see and they went roaring by. I pulled the cart around so they could see it. I heard this voice pop up going, thanks, Dad. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I was say, I mean, they're in. Age, they're, I mean, they're in. just thrilled to see an airplane. And then to watch it, you know, go by just for them to see it makes it a completely different experience. Oh, yeah. They were completely invested. Uh, so we had a great time watching that, grab some food. And not long after the F-18s were done, there was a... F-22 Raptor that came out onto the field, got in the air, and just started putting on a clinic of stunts and airspeed precision, and it was really great to watch that go. And I'm like, wow, that just wow, beautiful plane. And there was a lot of other great stuff as well. Um, they had a lot of World War II airplanes up and doing tricks, uh, some smaller biplanes, which were cool, but I'm going to be honest. I mean, any, any other time to see these other planes go up and do their thing, I would have been thrilled to see. But coming straight after the Blue Angels and an F-22, <laughs> it, it, it diminished yeah, it. led with the good stuff? Yeah, it diminished it just a bit. Did you see any high-performance stealth planes? I thought I heard one for a second, but as I began but to turn... I, I began to, I, yeah, I began to turn my head, but then there was a gentleman with sunglasses and an earpiece, you know, pushing my shoulder back, going, nothing nothing to see here, sir. There's nothing to see. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that, that, that tracked. That yeah. tracked. Uh, the other cool thing that I did see was, besides all the planes they had on the ground that you could come up, look in the cockpit, or go up into, uh, they had a rocket truck, which sounds a little silly, but it was basically a... What looked like it used to be a fire truck. And then someone decided, you know, let's throw a jet engine in that. <laughs> and watching that fly by, like, it raced a small jet, and it won. And Did you get to meet Buckaroo Banzai? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, wa I started to run up to say hi, but then he said something about being needed in another dimension, and it, it uh, was gone. Yeah, it's always the way. And there was a dude in a really dated cowboy outfit who was chasing after him. 
and suddenly people were were wearing really skinny ties. But the rocket car, I don't think I've ever seen anything on land go that fast. It was loud. It was wonderful. Fairly sure that the guy who was driving that thing probably pees himself every single time he steps on the gas. Do you know how they uh, how they deal with that? How? Depends. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say rubber seats, but that's better. Yeah, if ever you get a chance to go to an air show, whether it's in Fort Worth or anywhere, I recommend it. Parking will cost you a little bit, but it's it's just a great memory and a great experience. And it's one I think that we're just going to do. As long as the kids have fun doing it and really love it, we're going to keep doing it. Because both Joy and I, I mean, we could have left the kids at home and we would have had a blast. <laughs> Uh, also, in the last month, besides the air show, uh, took the kids to the Texas State Fair. And you go there for two reasons. See some livestock, see some crafts or shows, and eat some of the worst food that God has put on the planet. Actually, God has nothing to do with the food there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that God is involved yeah, in not. fair food. No. <laughs> Although I will say this, I am almost positive that fried Snickers will be at the marriage supper. <laughs> I had a fun time Of course very crowded um, One of the big things That people want to eat At the Texas State Fair Are a certain brand of Corn dogs called Fletcher's Fletcher's Corn Dogs There's several stands throughout the fair that sell them Each and every one of them has a line At least three quarters of a mile long <laughs> If I had gotten in line For a Fletcher's Corn Dog we would be recording from the line. <laughs> I would still be there day and night. So we decided to skip the Fletcher's corn dogs and just get some other normal fair food. Uh, saw some saw some pig you races. Find some corn dog scalpers. <laughs> no, because most of the time they're just generic corn dogs with a Fletcher sticker put on. <laughs> we did get, well, technically we did because we I did get a corn dog, but Counter it was fit. a it was a Texas <laughs> State Fair corn dog, not a Fletcher's corn dog. So, yeah. We saw some pig races, a dog stunt team, which was really cool. And then on the way out, that's when we got the really bad food. And the reason we did this is because my wife's work sent her and her department to the fair during a weekday and gave them, like, a whole bunch of food tickets. And she still had, like, over 100 left. <laughs> and so we're like, all right, let's go that, to the fair. That sounds like a heart disease or stroke murder plan. <laughs> yeah, this is conspiracy to commit. Yeah. yeah. On the way out, we did grab the bad food, the fried Snickers, which is way better than it has any right to be. It has absolutely no reason, no cause to be that good. Uh, we also got some fried Oreos, which were okay. They were all right. But honestly, now you can get fried Oreos at Sonic. And if Sonic's mm -hmm. got it, then the, the magic is gone. <laughs> but it was still a fun day. And I think that that is going to wrap it up for me. And now, listeners, we are going to be taking a look at the second movie in our Animated Film Club series. Mike, what will we be discussing today? All right. Uh, for this episode, we are going to be reviewing one of my absolute favorite films, Spirited Away. And I remember the way that I found this film. And it was, I was just walking through a store and they were selling DVDs. And there was this DVD cover that had this wonderfully drawn nighttime bathhouse and this character. I didn't know her name. I didn't know anything about this film. But just something in the way that this was drawn really drew me into this character. And I had to see this film. So I went to the video store and rented it and just started an absolute love affair 
with all of Miyazaki's films. And so I was just thrilled that we were that we were going to be taking a deep dive into this movie with what time we have left. So let's start by examining the context of this film. All right. Well, there's some some differences between the Japanese and American uh, animation industries, first of all. As most people are aware, the American animation industry has largely abandoned uh, the hand-drawn 2D traditional animation style. The Japanese, for one reason or another, have preserved it. They're still churning out traditionally animated 2D stuff. Culturally, they tend to prize both the tradition and the the meticulous handcraftedness uh, of the artwork. And yet, somehow, they still manage to industrialize even that, being Japanese. And besides the the industry differences, one thing that strikes me every time I watch anime is there are stories that the Japanese tell that wouldn't fly for an American studio. Right. Like, in this one, we've got a character who is cast as the villain. We've got this witch, Yubaba. And in an American picture... At the end of the movie, she'd be killed or she'd be dethroned. Um, something would happen to her. Or she would be defeated. She'd be turned and, into something or her name would be taken away. Right. In this one, she retains her position. Her situation doesn't change at all. Just because she was the villain didn't mean that she needed to be overthrown. And I think that's a an interesting difference between the way the Japanese see story and the way that we do. I had just watched uh, the film with... Uh, with somebody who had never seen it before. So I was trying to see this film anew through her eyes at the same time. And when we got to the end of the film, Christina said, wait, that's it? She just walked away? (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah, she's free. It's almost jarring in its simplicity. Mm -hmm. I had the same response to uh, My Neighbor Totoro, where it got to the end of the movie and I thought we were still in Act 2. It's like, wait, Mm. it didn't. It didn't have the plot that I'm used to. It resolves the plot that it presents. The little girl's desire is to get her parents back and leave. And it does exactly and, that. It doesn't go any further. Yeah, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rest of what happens is a Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland type exposure or sets of encounters. But the chief thing here is the character growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing that has changed is the little girl herself. And Haku, to some extent. He's restored. Yeah. But Good that's... point, yeah. One other thing that I really appreciate about uh, watching Japanese film is that window that we get into uh, Japanese folklore and religious thought. Um, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli in particular are really good about that. It's not like an academic view. We're not getting, oh, this is what Shinto is all about. But... It's definitely a movie that is Shinto-influenced. In, and I don't know a whole lot about Shinto. Um, I know it's pantheistic, but not like purely pantheistic. But being exposed to it, being able to see this, this is a distinctly not Judeo-Christian-oriented society. And the assumptions that we make in the West about what religion is about and what our relationship to nature and to the spirit world is... You know, that's different in a Miyazaki film. Right. And I think that's a, a very significant thing because cinema is very, very much dominated by American thought. In general, even when movies are being made by the British or by the French, uh, there's still, that's Western culture. It's the same thing 
the same uh, intellectual building blocks that we've got. And so the fact that Japan's got this very successful and very uh, rich cinematic tradition and cinematic history is, I think, a valuable thing for American audiences. Um, I can only name three uh, Japanese directors, but uh, Miyazaki is one of them. The other two being Akira Kurosawa and Ichiro Honda. And the only reason I remember Honda was because he featured in an episode of Legends of Tomorrow recently. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of other themes of this, as I was watching it, there's not many, but the film does present various metaphors. And I was trying to interpret them. There's the underlying theme of the dangers of greed. Definitely. And mm. uh, another one is self-sacrifice. But both Joy and I were wondering, how many more are there? that we're not noticing and just don't translate to us because we're not familiar with Japanese film style and folklore. Well, I think sure in terms quite of a lot. folklore, right, there's plenty that's there because there are, I mean, you know me, there is so much that is relevant to the philosophical and cultural underpinnings of the way that we express ideas. And what we can catch is what we can catch without doing more academic study and without far more cultural grounding than we as amateur viewers have. Mm-hmm. That was an academic's way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know there was at least a couple of things and I'll, I'll want to talk about the no, no face spirit when we get down and talking about characters, because there were some things that I, that I watched and read about Miyazaki himself and the autobiographical stuff that he put into the the film so i think there is definitely more than just the the top level themes there was also the a kind of a minor uh note of the environmentalism which is pretty common in miyazaki's work also yeah right there's an entire scene that was inspired by a river cleanup that he took part in Mm -hmm. and one of the things that he did while he was cleaning up the river is pull a bicycle out and so that's part of the film where they clean a river spirit and it's just a disgusting thing. In fact, it's so horrible that when they first encounter it, see it coming, they think it's a, what was it? A, a, a stink demon. A stink demon, yeah. And I, I loved, because we can't smell him, honestly, but when you see the visceral reaction that everyone has just being in his presence, you know, those, oh, this is... Those things that are like bubbling out of his back and yeah. you're just imagining that they pop and you're like, oh my gosh, that must smell so bad. And you see everyone's <laughs> hair, every hair on their head and body just stands up on end. You're like, oh, this must be horrible. You can almost feel your own scalp <laughs> tingle with just this, yeah, and, and food spoiling in its presence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a uh, clogged drain pipe in my house back when I had uh... a house that I had to clean out and man, that the sludge that was in that and just knowing what it was, that memory came back when I was watching that thing ooze across the bathhouse. It's like, oh my gosh, that's gross. <laughs> oh, now I cannot. Start giving Brian yeah, flashbacks. I, no. no, I'm smelling it. The last time I make the drain, <laughs> all the hair and stuff. Oh, it was the main drain line out of the house. So it was like oh, the, the big metal, big iron pipe. And oh, it was bad. It was everything everything oh man that is a yeah traumatic memory for me (laughs) (laughs) all right let's talk a little bit about the production and technical note let's all right i mean first (laughs) i i just have to say the the music to this has 
just been gorgeous. I love the music to this, and I wish the soundtrack wasn't 50, 60, 80 bucks, whatever it was, because it's it's horrendously expensive and just beautiful. Mm-hmm. I particularly liked that end credit song. It sounded very Baroque. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about uh, Japanese music. I haven't listened to a whole lot of it, and I haven't listened to very much variety. So I don't know if that's a common style sound in uh, uh, in Japan, but it was just beautiful. It reminded me of something that I would have heard in like a college vocal vocal recital. He actually had that recorded for another film project that never took off. Oh, really? And he was yeah. Miyazaki was just listening to it over and over again during during the making of Spirited Away. And so he put it in in the end credits. Oh, I don't blame him for wanting to find a place to put it. Right. I also liked the the use of incidental music. It was <laughs> kind of almost uh, Looney Tunes-like, where the animation is emphasizing the music and the music is emphasizing the animation and you're hitting you're hitting beats of music to coincide with actions on screen. Um, I think that's a, a technique that's kind of not been used a whole lot lately, but I was really enjoying it in this film. And in addition to the use of sound design, I think that silence is definitely a part of Miyazaki's in general, but especially in this film, Spirited Away, how Miyazaki uses silence strategically to make an Mm -hmm. impact. That after we're just inundated with dialogue and background music and ambient sound effects, that when all of that suddenly pulls back, it just makes you hungry for what's about to happen next. And then you have you know, this rushing of water and the cleansing. And it was just an amazing use of silence in his film. Mm-hmm. Who was it that said that the music is not the notes, it's the space between the notes? Is that too esoteric a quote for anybody to know who said it? <laughs> Google, no. <laughs> I may be wrong, but wasn't that, was it Mozart? No, it might have been Debussy. Debussy. Okay, was it Debussy? Or I also looked it up, but I've also seen people attribute it to Mozart with the phrase, the music is not in the notes, but in the silence between. I mm. see it. At, oh, let's see. Did Mozart say Okay. I'll, no, I'll bet that that's one of those Mozart. quotes that nobody knows who said it, and it's just been attributed to everybody. We're going to find that phrase, and it says, the music is not in the notes, but in the silence between, quoted by Moby. <laughs> with a picture of Eminem in black and white. Right. Or the next time we see that meme, it's going to be credited Geek at Arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Uh, anyways, Abraham anyway, Lincoln, yes. I did uh, hear one uh, interview with Miyazaki while I was doing my research where he was talking about that concept of being able to pause and take a breath and you know stop and look at the water for a moment, and he called it Ma. And when questioned about what Ma means... He started clapping his hands, and he says, that space between the claps, that's ma. The clapping doesn't work unless there's a space between. Hmm. So since that is what he uses to describe his animation, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about his animation. And with this film, my goodness, the level of detail yeah. is just incredible. How can a studio make a car driving down a road look absolutely beautiful. (laughs) Not only that, we know what kind of car it is, and the animators animate how the anti-lock braking system works, because it's specific to that vehicle where you see him push down hard on the brakes, 
and the brake just trembles. And that is mm-hmm. a feature known to that that model of car in its ABS system. I mean, real, who thinks to draw that? Mm-hmm. Miyazaki, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> and you see the animation, the level of detail present, even in the smallest moments that you think no one's paying mind to it, but there it is. Yeah. I, I looked this time around at all of the gauges leading up to and in the boiler room, and each one of them is trembling or moving. Hmm. I mean, that's not the focus of the shot. We're watching the characters. We're discovering as they discover, but this environment is so rich that this is also alive. Yeah, and that's really telling because most of the time in a background, you've just got you know your solid static painting um, that the cells are being put on top of, and you save a lot of money by not animating anything that's in the background. And so the fact that they did that means... You know, that shows the level of commitment that they had to the project that we're going to spend the money on the animators to do this, even though it would be far, far cheaper and nobody would know the difference if we didn't. Um, and even little things that are that are plot points. Uh, we have a part in the narrative where she says or she's told, don't turn back, don't don't look at the bathhouse, which is tied to Shinto mythology, but it also reminds us very much of Lot's wife. Like, don't don't look back mm-hmm. at the bottom of the door. I was so tense. Yeah, so was I. When she was walking away, like, oh, she has so far to walk. How is she going to resist? And there's that one <laughs> moment where she pauses she and almost... her head begins to turn. You're like, oh, she's about to turn to a pillar of soy sauce. And in the, <laughs> in the moment that she almost turns, her hair tie sparkles. Like this, this thing that you're that is made of the threads your friends have woven together will protect you. It twinkles at that moment, mm. and then she turns ahead and goes. So here's I've a question: that Film a hundred times, never noticed that. What do you think would have happened to her if she had turned back? I, I, think I don't know, far, and I don't want to. Yeah, I think that's far more rooted in the Shinto traditions that I'm prepared to speculate about. Now that comes up a couple of they tell you something, but they don't explain it comes mm-hmm. up a couple of different times in this movie. Haku tells her, when you walk away, don't turn back. Keep going forward. And that made me think of another moment where just a few scenes earlier, the witch puts her through a final test. Which one of these pigs is your parents? If you choose them, you all get to go free. If you don't, you stay with me forever. And presents her with like 12 pigs. Every single one of them looks like the other. It never gives any explanation how she determines that none of them are her parents. Now, true, in an earlier scene, Haku takes her to go see her parents, but the scene that it shows the audience is the her parent pigs. You, you see them from the back. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't show her going to them any other time. There's never any explanation given as to how she knows that those pigs aren't her parents. She even has a nightmare where she can't tell her parents from the other pigs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just somehow she knows because Haku does tell her when he takes her to see them, study them close because this will be important later. And she shouts at them and runs away. Yeah. (laughs) So apparently that short a time was enough that she could tell those are her parents that when shown 12, that when we see them as they are drawn in this later scene, they are exactly the same. She knows it's not them. I don't know. Maybe her hair tie is shown then again, too, <laughs> to let her know that's not them. No, let's take another watch. Yeah, I know what... there were a couple of places where we were talking about 
the assumptions that a Japanese viewer would make and the things that they would understand that we don't. Um, and I know that there are a couple of places in the translation where, like when they're walking across the bridge oh, and they see oh, the yeah. bathhouse, and she says, oh, it's a bathhouse. Well, that wasn't in the Japanese script because a Japanese person wouldn't need to be told that's a bathhouse. They would recognize it. Um, so I know there's doubtless countless other places where the translators and the, the American localizers didn't recognize right. something that they didn't know they didn't recognize. The placing the fingers and thumbs together and doing the the break between them. To ward that, off evil, yeah. That's something that was done in old school Japan when you've stepped in something tainting or you've touched something that is, I don't want to say corrupting, but unclean. And that was kind of like your cootie shot against the unclean. <laughs> yeah, as beautiful as it is, American perception of this film, when it came out in 2002, it did okay in the U.S. It only grossed about $13 million. Man, it didn't do very well at all. And then I checked out the cumulative worldwide gross, almost $350 million. This was the, the most successful Japanese film at that time. Like, not just Japanese animated film. This was the most successful Japanese language film ever. I don't know if that's still the case, but it certainly was at the time of release. If I'm not mistaken, your name blew it out of the water. Oh, yeah? That doesn't surprise me. We've discussed your name on this podcast before, haven't we? I was a little too enthusiastic about the film to properly give it the debrief that it needed, but it was... Yeah, we'll, maybe we'll come back around at some point to your name. Um, we'll probably hit it up sometime later. Yeah. I do want to mention that when deciding what Miyazaki movie we wanted to do for the animated film club, it was really hard to do so because we knew we had to include at least one. And, I mean, there's just so many good ones that came out of Studio Ghibli. One of my favorites, Porco Rosso, Howl's Moving Castle. And we'll doubtlessly uh, talk about some of those others uh, next time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why we had this, well, why we've set this up. Let's talk about Spirited Away, and then we're going to set aside some time for us to, to talk with a friend about all of Studio Ghibli's film, or all of Miyazaki's films, because they really tie so much into each other. Yep. All right. Um, let's talk about the plot to this film. I think, James, you summed it up nicely. Girl goes into the spirit world. Girl wants out of the spirit world. Girl leaves spirit world. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. It's funny because I read a few things that described Spirited Away as having such a wonderful, rich plot. And I honestly don't think that this plot was particularly rich. This wasn't story heavy. It's yeah. a really simple idea. I think uh, when people are saying that, especially if they're if these are Western reviewers... It's because they're recognizing, oh, this is a really, really obvious and blatant use of the hero or part of the hero's journey. We're going into the underworld, the spirit world. We're having a transformation. We're bringing back the elixir and then going back to the real world changed. You know, that's Joseph Campbell, like by the numbers. He's like, oh, we recognize this. This isn't something weird like Totoro that ends in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it has enough structure for us Westerners. It has enough familiarity in the structures mm-hmm. for us Westerners to grab onto this and say, yeah, this is, this is amazing. Like, but right. there's, I, honestly, there's not a lot of story there. Yeah. Right. There's no big um, climactic battle. Speaking of themes, there's not a lot of the themes that we associate with a hero's journey 
that are present in this, at least not in the in the style that we're used to. Mm-hmm. And what's really funny is Miyazaki didn't have a plot fit together when he started this film. He didn't have a script when he did the storyboards. He described this as saying that he said that he usually doesn't have a script when he starts the storyboards. And the plot just kind of evolved organically as he made this. Uh, and the quote that I have is, it's not me who makes the film. The film makes itself, and I have no choice but to follow. And I, I think that was really evident when we have this, as I've called it before, a Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland story, mm-hmm. particularly as we have a female protagonist. One of the things that I love about this film is that we have, I don't want to go too much into her development, but we have kind of an annoying female protagonist who becomes courageous, strong, and shows positive virtues in this transformation journey. Oh, don't sugarcoat it. Call her what she is. She starts off the movie as a brat, mm-hmm. as a complete total brat. Yeah, Yubaba assesses her character properly when she's berating her. Mm-hmm. You're a weakling, what a spoiled crybaby, and you have no manners. All true up to that point in the film. Yeah. But even though she does allow herself to be pushed around, and instead of acting, she is more reacting through much of the story, she, in a rather short amount of time, turns it around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's actually use that as a launching point. Let's talk about these characters. Because let's face it, it isn't the plot that's moving the story forward. It's the characters. Chihiro, specifically, definitely. So we begin with somebody who's pouty in the backseat of a car. Uh, and the I have to say, the, the parental-child interaction there is just beautiful and rings true like the the (laughs) parents are barely interested in anything that she has to say i've never had a bk your father gave you flowers that doesn't count i mean (laughs) there were times though on the other side of that coin i watched the parents interaction like uh, i looked at my wife and said sweetheart remind me to be nicer to the children please (laughs) yeah true i've had moments with my children when they have been like chihiro absolutely 100 percent But you know what? There have been times that I'm like, no, I don't need to be that dad. Any parent does find themselves like, yes, I did that. No, it's fine. It's okay. Hurry along now. Oh, you'll be okay. Like, "Mm, no, note to self. Listen to my children. (laughs) Yeah, and her self-absorption, you can see in her parents also. It's very clear where she came by that attitude that her comfort was the most important thing. Oh, yeah. Dad doesn't want to take the time to do a three-point turn on a a country road. Mom's more concerned about, oh, we've got to get to the house. I don't really want to be on the road all the time. We've got to meet the movers. And then they get into the... Don't worry. The movers can start without us. (laughs) Right. And it's about, oh, hey, now I'm hungry. We must have food. Mm -hmm. Or the dad, he sees something interesting. And so he just drags the family along because he's the one who wants to go see it. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear where she comes by her uh, her selfishness at the beginning. But on the other hand, she's not really selfish. She's not greedy. And that's what saved her yeah. from being turned into a pig initially. And it's what saved everybody eventually. Absolutely. Yeah, the, it's the fact that she's, though she's self-absorbed, she, as you said, she's not greedy or, or not what we would call selfish. She's mm-hmm. just got this shift in her focus um, that is very much in touch with her, her wants and, and comfort, uh, which does not, ex- but there are lines. Like she won't take the pile of bath tokens. She won't take the food. When the river spirit vomits forth all of this gold, she's not on the ground trying to gather it up. 
Mm-hmm. Like there is something that says to her that that is not hers and she doesn't even want to do this. Unlike every other member of the, the bathhouse staff. So where do we start to see this shift in her, her character from you're a useless spoiled crybaby and you have no manners to the person who she becomes? That's a good question. I think it's when she is presented with scenarios where she has the choice to act out of kindness and generosity. Mm. You know, I'm, yeah, she's... I'm thinking back on it, and I think the earliest where we see her do something for another person for the sake of being kind is when she lets the no-face into the bathhouse, which turned out to be the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. She <laughs> yeah. thought that he was a customer and was just outside. She goes, here, I'll leave the door open for you. It's a very simple jet. Now, true, it had repercussions that she was unaware of, but it was a very kind and simple gesture. But I think it's interesting that that was, as far as I can recall, that that seems like that was the turning point in her character. Yeah. She even refers to him as sir, doesn't she? I mean, she uses an honor. uh, Does she use an honorific at that point? I don't remember. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I had forgotten that first step because the the next step that I was remembering is her interaction with the stink spirit that... Mm -hmm. You know, yes, she's compelled to, like, no, you take care of this guest and don't insult our guest. And she was, you know, she was unfailingly polite and she was thrown into the worst of the slop, but still persisted. Mm-hmm. She never said, well, I gave it I gave it my best faith effort, or at least I did a good faith effort. It is what it is. She keeps at it. She takes the tokens that No Face had dropped. She keeps trying to do more to actually give this unsatisfied spirit what it needs until she is in the muck with him and finds the thorn in his side. Yeah, because, I mean, as soon as he was in the water, she could have bolted. Everyone else did. But like you said, she tried to help him clean him. And when she saw the thorn in his side, she let everyone else know and worked at it as hard as she could until it was out. Yeah, that was entirely voluntary. Yeah. There was nobody expecting he, her to do that. And Yubaba praises her for this. Mm-hmm. She says, this is an example, everyone be like Sen, or learn from her. You know, what's interesting is that I noticed a dramatic, when we, we start to see these changes incrementally from that point, one of the things that I think showed one of the most tremendous changes of character is contrasting her experience from the stairs when she sees it. It's just a set of stairs. Granted, there's no rail, and this is steep. And yeah, it might be a dizzying height, but she just crawls down the stairs one at a time until something breaks and forces her to go full tilt, lest she you know, fall over and die. Uh, and contrast that to when she's trying to get to Yubaba's room, and she's faced with a rickety pipe. Mm-hmm. And she sees the most direct route, and what she does is she girds her sleeves, ties herself up, and she that was just a terrific little run. bit too. I loved that. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is character change. This is we have a simple task of walking downstairs, and second, something that would make any one of us squeamish. And she runs for it and does what she needs to do to save her friend. Mm-hmm. We were just discussing a moment ago about the first time we see her in an act of kindness. I just remembered. I think that they gave us a showing of the capacity for it when she's in the room with... Oh, uh, Kamaji? Kamaji. I think I... And she sees the the soot spirit carrying the piece of oh. coal, 
and yeah, he trips right. and that. it lands on top of him. you see the little legs she reaches down picks it up gets it off of him and then she's like oh now what do i do do i just do i drop it and he tells her finish what you started and she doesn't human. she does human yeah doesn't throw a fit and say but it's heavy she gets over to the fire which is clearly hot and clearly uncomfortable and tosses it in yeah and then everybody wants that. her to do it for them yeah so, I mean, it looks like she's carried a bit of this every step of the way. We just get to see that improved upon when she's put in these these situations of adversity. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt the flow. I just that just popped into my head. No, I, I think know, that that, was... that needed to be said. Okay, right. we need to we need to talk about Yubaba. I think let's do Haku and Yubaba at the very least because um, uh, they're the two that, besides Sen, they're the two that I think are most central to the story. I don't really have much to say about Haku. He was fairly straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's somebody who who the people in the bathhouse thought was wicked, just like the person he served. Uh, and it's really only these acts of kindness that we see because we're seeing them through Chihiro's eyes. Chihiro sees this person who is responding to him as kindly. First, he tries to get her out of the spirit world. And when he fails to do that... He does everything he can to sneak her in and get her a job and get her play by the rules of the spirit world so that he can make sure that he sees her out. And it's really only that we're seeing him through Chihiro's eyes that we think that he's at all trustworthy because the spirits in the bathhouse don't trust him. Well, you know, until she came along, he might have given them every reason to believe that he wasn't trustworthy because it isn't until he encounters her that a the slightest spark of memory from his old life awakes in him. Right. Because they have a shared history and it comes up later in the movie. And so seeing her, her being thrust upon him might have just ignited that little spark within him saying, Hey, you're not just Yubaba's protege. You are more than that. Well, and it's also the fact that he was controlled. Yes. And she was, she was the impetus behind the destruction of that control. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Let, are we ready to talk about you, Baba? I think so. Oh, yes. There's so much that can oh. be said about her. She is such a wonderful antagonist. I love this character. There were a couple of times where she really threw me a curveball away from the whole atypical, oh, here's an animated Disney-style villain. Yeah. Like, after the issue with the stink spirit slash river spirit is resolved, she praises Sin. She says, you all need to pay attention to her. It's thanks to her that we had this wonderful opportunity. You should all be like her. Okay. Um, wow. Was not expecting that. She hugs her, and then she says, what's truly important to you, Baba, we made so much money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She does have these these moments where she is great. She's harsh. She's greedy. She's wicked. But she's not evil. She's not a villain. She's not wantonly destructive. She has rules. If she makes an oath, she keeps it. You know, I made an oath to give anyone a job who asks for it. She hates that, but she holds all the power, but she doesn't act just out of that power so she is Um, lawful evil yeah and also (laughs) did you notice how unglued she came when her baby was missing i mean she loves her baby Mm -hmm. i mean it's a distorted love it smothers pampers and shelters the child 
That's yeah, a distorted I mean, baby too, though. Yeah. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. When I first saw the baby, I'm like, okay, Miyazaki, what's the deal with this? <laughs> Play with me, or I'll break your arm. Like, ah. That should be a new phrase whenever there's something that we need to discuss but don't want to. Okay, it's time to talk about the giant baby in the room. <laughs> because clearly the baby ate the elephant. Yeah. You know, but all you were saying about how she, she has her own rules and that, well, she's not a malicious spirit. She's not exactly a kind one either. No, she's, she's a wonderfully complex character. She's not a good person. But she's not the typical evil villain that, you know, where there's the moral imperative to destroy. Like, no, she's going to run the bathhouse. She's going to be a harsh boss, but she's going to do her thing. And the bathhouse seems to be a good thing for the spirits. I mean, they Mm -hmm. need a break. And while her employees are worked hard, none of them seem to be suffering. Uh, She is uh, a force. She, like all the spirits, she has a a role to play and her personality, her attitude is what she uses to perform that role. And it's in understanding it that you learn how to deal with her, learn how to survive her. It doesn't, like Mm -hmm. you said, it doesn't make her evil to be what she is. She's going to be that. She has to be that. She doesn't have a choice. The no face is the same way. He has a nature The trouble with him is that when he entered the bathhouse, that nature was changed. Right. Um, Now, do you think it was changed before or after he ate the frog? I think it was changed as a result of him entering the bathhouse. And I have a specific reason to think this. In one of the featurettes, somebody actually, it was the the co-producer who said that no face was an aspect of Miyazaki's own negative personality traits. And then they cut away and they didn't, they never elaborated on that but knowing a little bit about what i know of him if you take the bathhouse as representing the world in which he finds himself the the animation industry in japan and no face comes into this and is corrupted by what happens there because the animation in japan tends to be a little bit of a a grindhouse for the artists um they're they're treated as interchangeable cogs in a machine. They're treated poorly, extremely long hours, low pay. And Miyazaki, when he started Studio Ghibli, one of his goals was, I want to pay these people what they're worth, at least. And he's done his best to do that. They're among the best paid animators in Japan. But he's known to be quite the taskmaster. I mean, he pushes himself really, really hard, but he pushes everybody around him equally hard. And I wonder if he recognizes that about himself and saying... You know, I'm in this meat grinder and it's turned me into something monstrous and Mm. I can give, I can throw gold at people, but ultimately when they accept my gold, when they come in here and they, they work for me, I devour them. Mm. This is speculation because he is, he doesn't say anything like this, you know, out loud, but if that, that just kind of rings rings really true for me about what I've seen in the industry here in America, what I know about it in Japan, and his hope that if I'm removed from this, I can return to what I once once was. If I can get to Zaniba's house, I can be that gentle, appeasing spirit that I that I used to be. I found it such a uh, when Sin was trying to lure No Face out of the bathhouse as he was going incredibly gross animation of him just vomiting (laughs) everywhere but it's such a harsh and a visceral visual 
you see him throwing up the people he swallowed, the things he swallowed, and the more and more he does it, the smaller and less angry he becomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, until Yeah, and until finally he's outside, and the last thing he coughs up is the first thing he ate, which was the frog. Who you think like, yeah. oh, the frog's dead. Then he just swims away. <laughs> and after that, he's he's himself again. And while we're here, I also wanted to mention a little bit about uh, Chihiro got that gift from the river spirit, the nugget of emetic or whatever it was. Yeah, and like I don't know if she ever said that. if she ever said or indicated that she, her goal was to give this to her parents so that they would vomit up all the stuff that they ate and they could be human again. And so by sharing it with No Face and sharing it with Haku, she gave up that hope of rescuing yeah. her parents. And talk and that about was a powerful moment. It was a very powerful moment. You talk about speaking about her growth and displays of courage, force feeding a dragon and then holding <laughs> its mouth shut while it squirms and fights until it swallows. That's braver than I am. Yeah. Uh-huh. My friend, while we were watching that, says, anybody who has a dog understands. <laughs> but what's funny is that uh, Miyazaki had to bring in a dog and a vet and show the animators how to do this because none of them had ever had a dog. Hmm. <laughs> Just an interesting little yeah. tidbit. One final point I want to make on the movie is actually a question, uh, and that is for Mike. At what age did you introduce this movie to your girls, or have you yet? Five. Five years old, really? Yeah, they were so into it. Cool. This comes down to something we've discussed at length on this podcast, is that every kid's different, and as a parent, you got to know where they're at, where their comfort level is. Mm-hmm. At this time, I could not show this to my seven-year-old because of her heart and of the things that scare her and the things that worry her. I know watching this movie would have been nightmare-inducing because, let's be honest, there are parts of this which are a bit scary. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are also parts which are going to make you wonder, how many drugs were the Studio Ghibli people on? <laughs> well, I mean, if I could offer you, you know, from one parent to another, some advice as somebody who loves this film and you have a seven-year-old who would not respond well to it, um, don't. <laughs> Just, yeah. There's always time. There's always there time. There is always time. And we decide we'll wait until she's probably closer to Maybe 10, 11, 12. And we'll see. Share it. Share it when she'll love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, good phrase. We should put that on a T-shirt. Share it when she'll love it. <laughs> well, gentlemen, is um, there anything else, any final points we wanted to make on Spirited Away? I mean, I think that we could probably spend a year on this show yeah. and, and still have more to say. So I, I'm sad that we don't have the time to do a deeper delve. But... I love this film, and there's always going to be more to explore and more to discover. And as we said before, there are so many incredible Miyazaki movies and so many that we could have gone with for this film club, and a lot of them we're going to be discussing in our very next episode where we look at how wonderful this studio is and some of our favorite moments and uh, characters from these films, why they're important, and so much more. And we're going to be doing so with a special guest. Uh, Mike, who is it that we're going to be having on in our next episode? Uh, we have invited Bex from Redeemed Otaku. Uh, Redeemed Otaku is a Christian podcast that is focused on anime. I've talked to Bex off the mics, and you can also hear her on the on the Princess Mononoke episode of the Retro Rewind podcast. And so I'm looking forward to having her on the show. 
All right. Well, I think that that will lead us to this episode's Zombie Apocalypse Plan of the Week. Mike, how are we going to stave off the undead hordes this time? We are going to stave off the undead hordes by focusing once again on perimeter defense. We're and gonna, this, we're going to go to a bathhouse. Oh, oh I wish, <laughs> I wish that would do it. This is the problem with zombies: is that they still require some musculature on their bones in order to move. So we are preserving ourselves with a trusty maggot moat. By the time that they cross through that, they'll oh. be stripped bare. Oh, oh gosh! <laughs> this is an instance where the solution is might worse be worse than the problem. Than, than prob- yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So how come your colony got invaded? Honestly, it was just too uncomfortable. Just, <laughs> just knowing that it was there in the smell. It, yeah, none of us could sit still. It was just too gross. We, we, just, had, we, just, we just let the zombies in at that point. We welcomed them. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, we want to thank you all for once again listening in and encourage you to check us out online at facebook.com slash geekatarms at our website, geekatarms.com. And Mike, what's our Twitter? We are at ArmsGeek on Twitter. And so, as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geekatarms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.